are a human animal. You are a very special breed. For well, you are the only animal who can think, who can reason, who can read. Welcome to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Our guests today are Douglas Kearney and Tisa Bryant. Douglas Kearney is a writer in Los Angeles. He is the author of Patter from Red Hen Press, and he has two forthcoming books, Mess and Mess and from Noemi Press, and Someone Took They Tongues from Subito Press. One of the things I think about when I'm making the work is, is what sort of conversations will this allow me to have? What, what, what you know, do I get to talk about because people are reading this particular poem? What, what, what will that allow me to talk about? Tisa Bryan is also a writer in Los Angeles. Her book, Unexplained Presence, was published by Leon Works, and she's currently working on a novel, The Curator. She has writing forthcoming in the anthology, Letters to the Future, edited by Erica Hunt and Don Lundy Martin. I guess what I want most in my writing is to be able to bring my entire self um, to bear on the work. We're trained to adhere to a single voice and a single tone and a single register, one way of speaking, even though what we do daily is to switch constantly. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM, like a broken record magically repaired. You can listen to The People on the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Douglas Kearney and Tisa Bryant, welcome to The People. Happy to be here. Thanks for being on the show. So let's start with a pretty basic question. Can you tell us what do you call what you do as writers? Hmm. Well, for me, pretty much everything starts off as poetry. I know that I'm writing poems and that's and that's the truth even when I'm doing something that's, say, more kind of in a performative type of typography or, you know, I'm blasting things off the page or slanting them or canting them. Um, even when I'm doing that kind of stuff, I'm thinking as a poet. Uh, so when I'm making decisions about uh, how large one section of the text is going to be, I'm, I'm trying to put that in the same sort of headspace as when I'm deciding about, oh, is this going to be an M dash or is this going to be a comma? Um, is this going to be a metaphor? Am I going to do a metonymy uh, or metonym? Um, so, so first and foremost, I'm a poet. But I also, um, as like some of my students will will tell you, I'm I'm not I don't have the same ambivalence around notions of genre, um, uh, you know, kind of categorization as 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 a lot of folks I know. So I recognize that if it, at some level, if if we can imagine the sort of <clears throat> poetry world is like being this old record store. And you have all those plastic dividers as bluegrass, you know, uh, you know, psychobilly and that kind of thing like that. Then I then I think that that where my work oftentimes gets placed is in uh, experimental um, for a lot of people. Uh, but but recently I've really taken to thinking about experimental as really being a process and not an aesthetic. Um, you know, if 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 there's somebody who's been doing the same approach. For the last 20 years and and at one point it was an experimental approach at this point it's no longer an experiment they're not necessarily um you know experimenting anymore uh <clears throat> but at the same time you take somebody who's been doing say vispo for a long time visual poetics 
And then they start doing, I want to do Petrarchan sonnets. To me, those Petrarchan sonnets are experimental for that author, for that poet. And I think it's important to allow that space because, you know, reading the Petrarchan sonnets of a 20-year visual poet, a visual poetics-oriented poet, to me is really an exciting idea that we don't expect that 20 years of this of this other process to suddenly like, disappear. I'm interested in what happens when that process, uh, you know, meets this other form. And, and also just interesting seeing what that poet wants to discover through that experiment. So I, 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 I know it fits under what a lot of people think of as experimental. Um, uh, and, and I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm fine with that because I think I know what they mean when they say it. But, but first and foremost, I'm a, I'm, I'm a poet. Does that track for you, Tisa? It does. Um, I've found myself lately very um, ambivalent, hmm. um, more so about the term hybrid, ah, yeah. um, which I've applied to my writing myself for lack of a better term to, uh, to describe unexplained presence, like mm-hmm. what was happening between fiction and nonfiction. Um, I've always been a fiction writer. Or maybe I should say I've always been a prose writer. I mean, because then there are those fine lines around um, the fictive and the the, the nonfiction or the truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of hair splitting for people who work in sentences because it's not as easy to get at form. If you say fiction, there's a set of expectations immediately. Um, if you say nonfiction, even there's a set of expectations. Um, even when I said to myself, I'm writing a novel and it's called The Curator and I know like, how is it a novel? In what ways is it a novel? Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of know that I'm playing a lot with that form. Um, And I I had a a conversation with someone many years ago um, who kind of asked me, are you, you're writing a real novel? Like, (laughs) you know, and I was just like, yeah, well, like you're not in it. And I was like, oh, okay, so real, means complete so fictive that you as a writer and as a thinker need to be uh unrecognizable right or at least only recognizable from another point in life like you can you can be your child self um but you cannot be your current adult thinking Mm -hmm. self um i find all of this kind of uh kind of uninteresting Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. for prose Right. I, I think there's just so much fluidity, um, and not that there isn't with poetry. Um, and I started writing poetry mm. poorly. Um, <laughs> Who didn't? <laughs> yeah. But I like I like what poetry does, and right. I like what poetry can mean to the sentence. So I'm yeah. always yeah. working in that way. Um, yeah. But tell me more about your kind of. Uh discomfort with the word hybrid as far as that applies to your writing because I think that's uh, that kind of works well with the the problematics of just the word experimental mm-hmm. right. um yeah I'm still wrestling with it it's a lot of things um I guess what I want most in my writing is to be able to bring my entire self right. um to bear on the work um in its structure in its registers, um, and that's always plural, even mm-hmm. though we're always, you know, kind of, we're trained 
in these writing programs and even before that, um, well before that, throughout our education that we're to adhere to a single voice and a single tone and a single register, one way of speaking, even though what we do daily Mm -hmm. is to switch constantly um, through our registers, um, no matter who we're talking to or you know, we make our adjustments if we have to for particular people and circumstances, your work voice and your voice with your parents, your voice with your kids, your voice with a stranger, um, and all of those attendant rhythms and mm-hmm. vocabularies. But that's not how I live. You know, when I'm kind of free to just write, when I'm just writing, it's all of that stuff is in play. And I don't want to control it. I don't want to modulate it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think of that as hybrid as much as I think of it as, as human real. and real. Right. That's, yeah. that's right. whole. Whole. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's what we are. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the hybrid, it's sexy. It's a great word. Yeah. Um, it brings to mind a lot of things um, because it's such an appropriation, you know, from the sciences in particular. Right. Um, you know, and, and as such, it has all these problems, like how it's used in genetics and, you know, that a lot of these terms were never, you know, should have never been applied to human beings anyway, you know, but here we are. Um, <laughs> you know, so I understand the use of the word hybrid when it comes to um, messing with people's expectations in terms of genre, um, how a work behaves, what it does. Um, and what it doesn't do, um, you know, that there are these works that um, uh, proceed like lab experiments um, with, with sets of propositions, like what Banu does all the time, and but all kinds of things happen within that space. Yeah. Um, the uh, autobiography that is fictionalized and is also um, uh, an illustrated epic journey. Mm-hmm. Um, like what Anna Joy Springer does yeah. um, or what she did because, uh, you know, we can't yeah. expect that right. that's what she's going We're to do keep forever. Doing. Right, right. Exactly. Um, right. Yeah. so whatever that experiment was. was right. And like know, what the results of it was, what, right. yielded, what it yielded, what it made right. possible. What it made possible, do. what she needed to do. She needed to discover yeah. the methods yeah. to, to create that work. Yeah. Um, I mean, what you, you know, what you were saying about the term hybrid versus the idea of whole. Like whenever I think of hybrid, I always think of part. I mean, the first the first time I came across the word hybrid was when I was a kid reading about mythical animals. So, you know, I'd be like, oh, a griffin is a hybrid right. of a lion and an eagle. And so suddenly you're thinking about parts, these sort of fragments, as opposed to, I don't know, I sometimes think about idiolect, right? Mm-hmm. More so than even, you know, the, the idea of wholeness and idiolect to me seem at some level really synonymous um, what I'm talking about, or at least it working in really interesting tandem when I'm thinking about writing. Um, and, and of course, what you were saying when we first started, you know, about our desire to say, oh, to note, even if we're not exactly, uh, you know, criticizing it or, or, or suggesting that it be excised, to note shifts in register. Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh oh, mm, yep, there's a shift. Right. Um, like Who's she talking to now? Exactly. Is that exactly. for me or is that for me? Is this exactly. all for me? Am I supposed to be able to understand all of exactly. this? And what do I do if I can't? Like this exactly. idea of being kicked out of a text. Right, you right. Know, and I, I, that always drives me crazy. It's like, well, how does that happen? 
been. Right, right. You know, so there's this kind of exclusivity as like, a reader has with a, a, a writer mm-hmm. where the presumption is that everything is there for you to right. to know and to understand. Right. And that intimacy comes just from that. Right. And not right. from uh, any kind of questioning or struggle exactly. um, or not knowing, you know, that there's something that can be had yeah. um, from kind of acquiring uh, a closeness to a writer through not knowing everything they're talking about and learning Absolutely. other languages or other registers or, or shifting perspective. I think that's what I want writing to be. And it gets terrifying And yes, I will use that word terrifying um, because of the other concerns about wanting to be read and wanting to be understood Mm -hmm. um, and having like some ideal or dream audiences in mind. Um, But what you said earlier also about the the VizPo poet, the Mm -hmm. visual uh, poetry poet who uh, then uh, decides to take on the Petrarchan sonnet. Right. Once, okay, ideally that poet does not announce and it's nowhere on the book right. <laughs> that these are Petrarchan sonnets so that a reader doesn't come with all of their, they're, they're testing right. the form. Like, right. are you doing it? Like all of your questions, you know, like what is it, you know, what is this poet going to do with this form? What are they right. seeking? That's so specific to who you are as a reader and right. like, you know, kind of generosity and curiosity that you would kind of ask those questions and still be looking for process. Right. Um, yeah. Whereas most people um, might, and maybe I'm making an, I, I would be concerned, I should say, mm. that the move toward the Petrarchan sonnet would be a move towards normalcy and mm. conforming to the known. Huh. Um, and so perhaps all of that curiosity around what would this poet, what is this poet going to do with this known established form? Right. It might not be there in the way, it might not be there immediately. Yeah, fair. They might not be looking for it. Absolutely. I mean, fair enough. But I, but I also think that there's something to, you know, and, and, and maybe I fall on like musical metaphors fall mm. too often, but, mm. but like, you know, if you, if you find a CD of like John Coltrane playing flamenco, <laughs> right. That's like that's, you know, you're going to be like John Coltrane playing for like like you're instantly dealing with this kind sure. of this with this tension that I think sometimes can be really interesting because I think that what it does when you are when you when you do recognize that that's going to happen. I think one of the things that it does is it activates in the in this case, the reader. Right. Um, although the example would be the listener to think about, well, what makes flamenco flamenco? What makes what I think John Coltrane do different from flamenco? And then there's this kind of like kind of an unveiling of, of, of how the poet might think about the sort of formal constructs. Like, like, why is this no longer Vizpo? Is it only because I am, you know, aligning the, right. the, the line like this? Or is there something else that happens? And I'll totally cop to the idea that that that, that would be, for me, uh, uh, something that, that that's a quirk of my particular reading. But I think that if we are going to call people experimental, hmm then we actually aren't just looking for the product. We are actually looking at process. And so I think that that is where we can kind of free it from, again, the aesthetic of what is an experimental poem and ask the question, what is experimentation in poetry right. or experimentation in writing? And right. that to me, I think, is a more, is a more generative um, 
and works if we're going to play with the metaphor, right? I think it works more uh, because it shows us how we can go about doing things, how we can make certain kinds of discoveries, which 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 takes us to the question of innovation. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not. I'm not necessarily, because a lot of these things, if we're borrowing them from science, we're talking about experiment, but then we move into innovation. I think innovation is, is, is directly connected to um, capital and industry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, innovation is about doing something uh, better, more effectively, and oftentimes faster, more right? Efficiently, more efficiently. More efficiently. Yeah, efficiently and more economically. And if the capital is, you know, and I mean, I know this is probably, there are probably some listeners who are like getting grossed out, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you use the term innovation, um, I think that you have to be speaking about something that more than just yourself identified as a problem. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes something that more than just yourself can actually apply and do. You're listening to the people on K-Chung, 1630 AM. We'll return to our conversation with Douglas Kearney and Tisa Bryant in a few minutes, but first, a new installment of Notes from the People. This episode, our Notes from the People, comes from longtime friend of the show, Andrew Choate, performing at the K-Chung Fest at Paris Space here in Los Angeles on June 20th, 2015. This one's called, I Like Salmon and I Like Dill, So Why Do I Hate Your Dad? <laughs> And I wrote it because I was angry. Scooby dooby doo. I'm gonna woo you. Fu man fucking chew. I'm gonna woo you. Lolly wally coo. I'm gonna be you. Rolly poly goo. I'm brand shit new. Come on, baby, buy me. One clam leads to two. Come on, baby, cry, please. I want your flu to infest me like blue cheese. Give me residue. End up like Socrates. Boo, baby, fucking hell. I wrote out the cries when I was angry. Um, for this next one, um, it's really advised that you um, make turn and make eye contact with someone. It's only like 30 seconds. So turn and look someone else in the eyeballs. It really helps. It's called orange slices in the urinal, if that helps you pick a partner. <laughs> it's gonna be an indigent burial for me cause that's what happens when you've got no one to pick up your body when you die <laughs> y'all did great <laughs> I'm glad you like that one. 
This is uh, eyelashes as Venus flytraps. Bum, 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 bum. The dick of it. Bum, 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 bum. The cunt of us. Dum, 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 dum. The leg of fish. Doom, 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 doom. The legacy. <laughs> I tried not to wear pants tonight, so I didn't. It says bananas wearing helmets of half limes. I wrote this one because I was angry. And now let's return to our conversation with Douglas Kearney and Tisa Bryant. So, like, you remember a couple of years, I think it was, I think it was two, I think it was like in 2013, it might have been 2014, but I think it was 2013, uh, you would organize this panel uh, for And Now in Boulder. And it was about collectives and, you know, like, you know, you have the Dark Room Collective, uh, you know, connection. I was in Cave Canem, which is, you know, this massive Wu-Tang-like, uh, you know, organization now. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like, like someone who's, who's really interested in writing as your whole self, right? How does the collective, notion of the collective kind of pressurize that? Or does it put pressure on that when you're actually writing either directly in collaboration with other people, mm-hmm. right? Or just there's a thought about we are an organization, we write. Does that impose kind of strictures on what kinds of things you write or how you write? That's a great question. And that was such a good panel. Um, it was called What the Dark Cave Took. Hmm. And then had some crazy subtitle that I can't recall right now. <laughs> um, but it, that Dark Cave Took was the Darkroom Collective, Cave Canem, and the Black Took Collective. Hmm. Um, it was myself. You were on. Um, we had a recording right, from I made you. An MP3, you made I an think. MP3 for that. Ruth Ellen Coker was on the panel. Ronaldo Wilson and John Keane and yeah. Lillian Bertram. Yeah. Um, so that was really. And you know, the, the question was really around that. Like, why? Why gather? Mm. Why group? Um, what do you gain from that? What does it do for your work? Um, what does it do for you? Um, and, you know, I, I think for me, um, having joined the Darkroom Collective, when I was a really young person mm-hmm. um, and an even younger writer, mm-hmm. um, meeting all of these um, black, young black writers in my hometown, mm-hmm. um, and they were all from someplace else, um, and had all of these varying experiences and were um, just kind of out there, 
you know, the, like I, I just felt I, I got affirmed in, in ways that I didn't think were possible. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they listened to Morrissey so I could like there was an, like a series of outings like I could be out about all of these different things, <laughs> right, right. you know, because it's the 80s. It's, you know, we're in like the second or third wave of Afrocentricity. Right. Hip hop is on. And, you know, so the fact that I was just recently coming out of a kind of gothy emo thing um i want to see gothy emo pictures of tisa Brock. i think i have managed to destroy them all um, get to work they're right not now. there for you got sure. a bauhaus shirt you have, you have somewhere. to my brother for that um yeah you know so there, that some people were listening to billy bragg and right. like frank and mm -hmm. like there was all this like our whole selves could be there right. um and and that led to this amazing exchange of of books mm -hmm. um and film and music i think the first time i heard fela kuchi was in the darkroom collective oh, right? right sharon right. strange i'm absolutely certain i think sure. it was her um yeah and and so that kind of was such a formative like i, I got like quite an education um and that i also felt really um held hmm. by that kind of hive mind you know that we were kind of growing together and trying things out even and but we were not uh there was nothing homogenous about us there was right. nothing monolithic about us we, we weren't um even for all our mottos and stuff you know it wasn't um there was no uh it wasn't dogmatic in gotcha. that way about like what kind of work we produced um you know so i i think uh that kind of ethos around um i guess i don't need it as much you know so the kind of gathering and grouping mm -hmm. happens um in a lot less uh long-term mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. um but it is helpful to know that there are others mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that you're legible and viable in the world yeah. um and and that there there are places that you can occupy where you don't have to explain right yourself right. um you know the other night uh, myself and ernest hardy did an uh we collaborated on an event um uh it was actually we, we talked after a screening of friday mm -hmm. and ernest um used this amazing phrase called undiluted blackness right and right. you know there was this older woman in the audience who kept asking like what is that like what do you mean by that and it was really just about like my definition was you know a place where you don't have to explain you yeah. don't have to decode yourself you don't have to explain and there's right. something in having collectives um you know that allows for that but also collectives do a certain kind of work right. you know so it wasn't just about us being together and supporting each other and stuff like that but it was also very much about um making that reading series happen right. um uh the darkroom collective reading series in cambridge you know in our house for free right where right. all these amazing black writers came and the community was welcome um and you guys did that like every other week or every every week? other week that's yeah. that's a breakneck pace yeah. yeah 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 it was it was great and then i think about like what um black took collective you know as a much smaller group mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a very different focus but what they right. were able to do um and still do right. is to continually disrupt our ideas of of the poet right of right. the reading right. 
um, of, of decorum, of like the, the space in which all of this stuff can occur and what it's for, um, disrupting, you know, the, the, the market. Right. Um, and, and innovation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, you know, that kind of thing of, 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 uh, having uh, the impact that they've had on how we get together to experience what they do. Could you tell um, me what sort of disruptive practices they use? Because I'm not familiar. Oh, sure. Um, they do all kinds of things, um, especially when I'm remembering uh, in the beginning, there'd be a, um, phone calls right. in the middle of a reading, um, right. noise. Where they're like, they're, they've got all their computers linked mm -hmm. up to digital projectors and they'll be you know while one's reading the others will be typing and you'll start seeing oh my gosh they're retyping a conversation we had right before they started so suddenly you become a part of the performance and a part mm -hmm. of the text um and it's and it's you know like masks in the middle of it a, a, a breakdance battle i mean like that right and yeah thing. a mask um yeah. yoga could yeah. occur sudden yeah. singing right um the first time I heard Ronaldo read, he was, I, I may be misremembering this. I thought he was in tennis whites. I think he was. And he had his racket and a couple of balls at the Poetry Project in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and he was giving, he was giving a reading <laughs> while he was lobbing tennis balls against the wall. Yeah. yeah. And we were ducking and listening and, you know, these <laughs> balls are flying and, you know, um, yeah. you know, I, it, it makes me think about those, 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 uh, the importance of, of discomfort right. and what I think it's Erica Hunt, um, calls indigestibility, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, so there's something mm -hmm. that black took collective seems to do um to me um that makes it hard to just consume them gotcha yeah, um yeah yeah uh without having a cough something up right like on. you can have it but it might not settle right right it might right. not be what you think it is right yeah right so what okay so you've you've why cave conum well i mean cave conum what's interesting to me about cave conum is kind of a question that i was going to ask ask you about when you said earlier, and maybe we could table that for another conversation, when you said earlier about not feeling you needed the, the, the collective in, the, in, that, in that way anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was gonna ask, you know, do you feel like you don't need any collectives anymore? Or do you feel like you just don't need that model? Because to me, Cave Economy is really interesting in that uh, its success as, as, as a model, um, you know, has allowed it to become an institution mm -hmm. where before it was, it was, uh, it was, it was something that existed um, in the break between institutions and the absence of them. And so I think that there have been, you know, like, like waves of what Cave Canem, uh means and what it does. Mm -hmm. um, and if I were to think about that, I would think of myself as being like second generation this is this is totally off canon. Like you know, I don't know if there's any official way of thinking about. It, but I tend to think about it as as like a, the year 2000. We had, they they had just moved from the monastery uh, at Saint Alphonsus, I think it was in uh, New York, to uh, Cranbrook in uh, just outside of Detroit. And uh, I did my three years because you can go three years, you can do them consecutively or spread over five. But I did my three years all in a row, and they were all at Cranbrook. And right after that year. I believe, if I'm not getting this wrong, they shifted to a new space, and it's been at that space since. Um, and Cranbrook was was interesting because, I mean, if, if you don't know, it's this it's this design college mecca 
So you you have this sense that all of the space has been sort of fussed over, meditated over, poured over, um, and and you're in this space making poetry. Um, it's you know for me it was a beautiful space. I don't think everybody thought so, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but in that sense, I mean, so when I when I joined Cave Canem, there was this. It was before I even had applied for an MFA. I, I wasn't pursuing an MFA at that time. And I had gone to undergrad at Howard. I'd gone to a historically black college university. So for me, Cave Canem wasn't what it was for some folks like, like who had been um, in white institutions uh, or, or you know MFA programs as the only one. I had experienced being the only one in places, but not as a poet. So when I got there, my thought was, okay, now we can have like a really rigorous, robust uh, workshop. And, and, and it was that. But it was also, a, and I mean this without any kind of snark, it was also a really therapeutic space uh, for people who, who kind of needed to detox. I mean, the way I always say it is like being able to write a poem and not having to spend your time in workshop explaining what a hot comb is, right? So you can actually get to craft. Like, well, why is the hot comb there? Not, well, why would they use a hot comb? Why is it hot? It's a hot Why? What are now well laters? You know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing. And so like, you know, so, so, but there was also this time period where it was still kind of a, as I said, it hadn't yet become an institution. Um, but I think one of the key differences between uh, Darkroom Collectives and, and, and the Darkroom Collective and the Black Took Collective certainly are that those were collectives that were at least at some level self-selecting, yeah. right? You could go to that space and decide these are my people or these ain't my people right. and split. And Black Took actually grew out of, of Kaveh Kanem. Exactly. You know, some late night sessions exactly. around uh, form, yep. criticality, genre, criticality, yep. criti- criticality, 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 acrylicality. Right. That's my outcast. Sequiliki. And trope. And I think especially trope. Like 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 the idea of you could have a discussion about a certain a certain vantage of dare we say after our earlier conversation register of criticality. And respectability. And respectability. And then, you know, you could be all fired up about it, but the next day you're turning in a poem that seems quite satisfied with the existing tropes that doesn't that isn't pressuring them and i think that was something that black took collective was that 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 you know bonded these folks together and i'm sure they they have their own uh they have their own history to 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 explain for themselves but that was kind of the understanding of them and even as a member as even as a as a as a member of the Kaveh Kanem workshop, I had heard about those Black Took Collective people, <laughs> and, so, and, and, and you know, it was, and it was sort of like, oh yeah, those guys, you know, um, you know, and and so I, I, you know, for me, Kaveh Kanem then was this place where you could get exposed to the to the different books. Um, you know, I learned so much about the kind of reading that I hadn't done at Howard, and I and I went to Kaveh Kanem four years after I graduated. But I hadn't learned at Howard um, that I wasn't just picking up from my own reading of, of, of poetry um, at that time. And so to have that exposure at that particular moment in that generation, as I said, of Kaveh Kahnem was really important. But I also know that as a part of its success as an institution, right, some of that has shifted. The, the people who've come in who are in that first generation and some in that second generation, they're, they're on their third and fourth books. They're, you know, if they're not editing journals of their own, they're, they're, you know, the poetry editors of a number of different journals. Um, 
you know, and so there becomes a question of, of and this question was something we entertained at the 10 year mark, right? Do, you know, like, and when I say we, um, I used to do all the design for the Cave Con of anthologies, which early on were basically like yearbooks. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody who went got to put something in the anthology, right? And it was usually supposed to be something that you'd worked on that week. Well, you can imagine that meant that it was really fresh. Um, it hadn't been worked over. Um, and that's why I called them yearbook. They were basically yearbooks. But at the 10th year mark, they had an external publisher. Um, right. Well, we'd always had an external publisher. It was a black classic press. Uh, it's in a press. But we had an external publisher um, and they wanted to make a 10-year um, anthology that wasn't going to include everybody. Um, that it was going to be edited. And so you were going to be selecting that work. And so that was a shift. And, you know, I'll leave it up to, you know, individuals to decide whether they think that was a positive or negative shift. But it was certainly a shift in a kind of ethos around what it meant to be in Kavecon. And now there was a sort of a sense of we want to present the people we are choosing to represent that. And so I think that that was a pretty significant shift in just kind of like the ethos around it. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. So this has me thinking about editing, um, collectivity, and um, collaboration. And selection. And selection. Um, and canon formation. Right. Um, and how um, different members of a group, or even when we go into our MFA writing programs, like this kind of way of being gathered around a, a presumed, common, accepted understanding of right. what um, literature is or what literature is from certain groups of people and um, going towards that or chafing against it. And, you know, I, I think about um, editing as part of, as an intervention. Um, it, it can be an intervention hmm. into um, uh, some of the more uh, calcified um, or, or limiting aspects of canon formation. Right. Um, you know, with the Encyclopedia Project, um, we're doing our last volume, volume three, L to Z. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the fun that we had with that project and continue to have is to kind of keep mixing it up, um, you know, to try not to have as many, not to have like the usual suspects that it doesn't look like a kind of clicked out, right, you know, right. anthology. Um, and that it's kind of uh, marks our time in ways that perhaps aren't expected and it's cross-referenced and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think about how... Um, you know, some of the older anthologies that I have, that uh, June Jordan um, anthology, um, Clarence Major, um, and not his recent ones, the older ones from uh, the Black Arts Movement. Um, You know, you open up these uh, anthologies of of African-American poetry, um, and it is such an amazing mix of of practitioners um, who, if we think about the black arts movement, we wouldn't think that they would even be in a book together. So I I, I just um, am thinking about the idea of collaboration and collectivity um, as it also kind of pertains to the making of volumes of uh, of work um, and bringing people together and, and but also trying to expand our ideas of what 
the work can be or what it can do and that these people can actually know each other right. and be so different um mm. uh, that that's i don't know it just it just feels like a kind of it remains vital right even if the the function um and the the shelf life of anthologies is increasingly in question right. um they they still kind of show us something um about our writing context um yeah, and I guess it makes me think also about like where where we place our work, right, um, right. and like what we're trying to do in our writing that um, might also kind of be pushing up against um, general Euro-American or Eurocentric canon formations, mm -hmm. and in addition, you know, African American mm -hmm. uh, or mm -hmm. African diasporic right. canon formation. Um, what kind of space we're trying to make or we must make for ourselves and maybe for others through what we do yeah. as writers as well as as editors. Yeah. I mean, the idea of the of the collective that, that still manages to not be monolithic, right? I think that's a lot of what you're talking about. And it's interesting to think about um, looking back at an anthology versus building one. Like, mm -hmm. like, like, you know, you can't, you know, you, it's, it, you can, you can say, oh, I'll take all of these different things and different writings and I'll put them together. Um, or you could really be focusing on creating a sort of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, sort of molding a, a perception of what a time was, like what was happening in this time, particularly with this group of people. Um, I mean, when I think about where my work goes, um, in, in many ways, I mean, I, I'm, I'm at a fortune, I'm at a very fortunate uh, I'm very fortunate at this moment in my in my writing that you know people ask for work um, and and that and I mean like I don't expect that to persist forever <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but right now you know what happens and 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 that's something very interesting to you know this kind of sense of, of, of how you author your own uh, uh, path you know mm -hmm. what what you know if five people ask you for something, and you have four things, right? Four discrete things you would submit. You're deciding to a certain extent. Well, well, where, where do I want my work to go? And I try to think about um, one of the things I want my one of the things I think about when I'm making the work is is what sort of conversations will this allow me to have? What mm -hmm. what what you know do I get to talk about because people are reading this particular poem? What will, what will that allow me to talk about? Um, and if I think like that, and then you can ex expand that, and you know, I don't know, maybe you talk to your talk to students this way. Similarly, it's like, well, choose a journal where you want to be in conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that kind of space to me, because I'm, I'm I feel sort of fluid around. Um, well, is this exper This is an experimental poem, or or no? Nah, this is you know, this is a poem about a miscarriage. Um, it just looks like a comic strip, right? It just looks like the funny pages. Um, that that al allows me to sort of think um, <clears throat> that my work can go into a lot of different places. And one thing that I, that I really find um, in the last few years that I've been doing, when people do ask for the work that is, uh, uh, you know, again, sort of performatively type typographic, um, what I really have, have gotten into doing, which I love, is, you know, the, the inclination is, oh, will you send us a, a, a tiff? of the image and I say no what I'll do though is you send me the font that your journal uses send me the font the title font uh, whatever display font you use whatever your specs are for that size 
and all that. And I will reset the poem to those specifications so that there is this. So I, I, I want to blur the space between when you turn to from the last spread and maybe that last spread um, is a poem that is more traditionally laid out. Right. right, right. I mean, all poems are designed, right? But, right. But it's more traditionally laid out. And I want you to turn the page and I want to blur as much the possibility of you looking at it and going, oh, it's a picture, right? right. I want I want the poem to, to be in that same space of that journal. Um, and I think that, and, and I mean, as a, as, a, as a design challenge, that's, that's interesting to me because sometimes, you know, I'm working at a very different scale. Um, and so I have to make different decisions about how it's going to be laid out. Um, I've had to do that at different points. Um, but, you know, I think about that as like playing the song in, in a four minute format as opposed to the usual six minute. You know? <laughs> right. And I, and, and, and there can be a question of, well, you've changed the integrity of your vision. Right. But I'm actually more interested in how that, in how it works in yeah. the world and interacts. And it makes the poem improvisational. Yeah. Like it, uh, yeah, well, maybe improvisational is not the right term, but I Mutable. mean, it does keep it it is it's 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 alive right. then yeah. and right. it can change right. um and you know so there's a bunch of different things that happen if uh you know the difference mm -hmm. of your poetry doesn't get immediately marked right. in a in a in a journal like if you do uh change all of the the fonts and mm -hmm. the letting and everything to match mm -hmm the rest of the um, style sheet of that exactly. journal, um, then the encounter is, is different mm -hmm. than, um, you know, just taking a TIFF or trying to resize a PDF. Mm -hmm. I'd be more concerned with maintaining the integrity yeah. of the work otherwise then i mean not everybody is willing or able to do what you're able to do with your work since right. you are a designer right um but like what i've seen of uh nor bessie phillips's excerpts of zong right um it's deplorable yeah they get you know it's just like it's just distorted it's warped the the ink is different it's, right. it's not legible right. and you know something else needed to happen right um, but didn't, you know, and it was much more labor intensive, but also, um, it required, um, both the poet and the editors to ask questions about not just reproducing this work, but entering it. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And kind of, so then the stakes are there and if it must change, what does that mean? Um, it, I, I, I like, I like what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and it, I think about maybe a bit differently what you said about perception mm -hmm. and perspective is is um kind of at the heart of the curator also mm -hmm, yeah. um and part of why it's kind of wily um because <laughs> it is so much about seeing and being seen and the cinematic and black women um and and you know, what that kind of ocular experience is about. Um, but also it's quite, um, Erica Hunt called it um, the, the notational body mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and how to kind of render those notations. So I'm not doing the kind of typographic um, experiments that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't. I think I just jumped a shark here, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. 
Yeah. Well, no, you just about... like the way your work jumps. Like, anyway. I would ask yes. about with the curator, I think in somewhere you talked about um, registering, like uh, registering all the different kind of levels of noise mm-hmm. that goes through one's head as they're walking down the street in this kind of cinematic space, in this ocular space and what that is. And I feel like that is actually, I think that kind of works with like what Doug you're doing with like font sizes and things sliding off the page. And mm-hmm. can you tell us, That's tell me a, about that? Thank you for saying you put it very plainly. That's exactly it. Um, I came up with this term that you actually now just helped me explain even better. When uh, Doug and I did a kind of a collaborative presentation yeah. at Eastern Michigan University yep. three years ago now. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it might have been 13. Yeah. Um, and I came up with this term called textual orality. orality. Um, and it was a way to try to bridge, like to create some sort of conceptual bridge mm-hmm. um, or mm-hmm. a way of thinking about where our work and the our processes might link up. Right. right. Um, and so I'm not doing the kind of the, the graphic. Right. Um, representation right. of uh, a volume of noise of um, and, and other kinds of states of, of being and thinking and feeling the mm-hmm. way that you are doing it but it's it's, 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 it's there I feel like yeah. it's diegetic in your writing yeah I mean like like it it is like you know the very image of you know one of the one of the kind of core images that I think of when I think about you know unexplained presence is the writer writing herself watching you know a film and then going deeper into the film kind of behind the film Mm -hmm. like all of these layers are there in your description um in the way the 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 you know the composition of of the mind how we how we recognize the perception the word somatic is really important in that Mm -hmm. in that and i and i feel like that is something that's happening in the work and and in many ways i feel like there's something that the prose paragraph um, allows that I feel like the poetic line break would be would be too indexical. Hmm. It would be it 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 forces like this is the part where I'm talking about me. This is the part where I'm describing the image. This is the part where I'm making an opinion about the image. Whereas when it's all in that on the paragraph, right? Our understanding of a paragraph is that oh well, these things are all interrelated and are all part of one uh, uh, idea. Mm-hmm. Right, it has an integrity in here in a way that the stanza, you know, stanzas can enjam. Uh Stanzas can exist strictly as rhythmic devices, um, and I'm not saying that that's impossible with paragraphs. But we are ready to read a stanza that way. Right. Because with the paragraph, we're going to read that as, oh, this is all one thing. Yeah. Thinking about the way in which the paragraph, like, is any one paragraph is supposed to be like, okay, this is a whole thought. Now moving on. Right. right. You know. And I think that's why I use. We had this whole conversation mm-hmm. about uh, why the prose poem. What right. is a prose poem? <laughs> and that um, was me. Like, saying, come on, Tisa. What is a prose poem? Damn it! I, was like, I don't know, but I really like it. And I think it has a right to exist in the world. How dare you like it? I like Explain it. yourself. I don't just like it. I love it, and I do it all the time, what? even though nobody seems to know it. Um, <laughs> but really, I think that's why. Um, that's where um, I meter w- rhythmically my sentences in order to navigate those flows Mm -hmm. and shifts in perception and perspective. Um, 
and why I so far don't, with a few exceptions, graphically right. represent those shifts. I do love italics, and people find them annoying. I love <laughs> using italics. Um, I think they're great, even though they, they kind of can lose effectiveness. But that's as far as I go, mm -hmm. um, because I wanted that sense of, of the whole phenomena of being a sensate, alive, thinking person. Like, how mm -hmm. do you kind mm -hmm. of do all that at once? Film does it right. without, uh, unless the, without interiority, right? You know, which is why you have the um, the uh, what is the word for that that thing contrivance oh, okay. of yeah. uh, voiceover, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and that's usually past tense anyway. So it's not, you know, present tense interiority. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, a reflection. Right. Uh, it's, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's experience and feeling after the fact. You're not, right. you're, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a film um, that's trying to do that first person voiceover where it's in the present tense. Yeah. People probably yeah. would go bananas because that voiceover would need, for most, intents and purposes, right? To be the storyteller who's telling you something in right. hindsight and you're yeah, watching right. it flow and looking for disparities right. or, or, or dissonance between right. what's being said right. and what's being seen. Right. And yeah. I'm trying to close that gap as much as I can in the curator um, while somehow adhering to my idea of the novel. You know, right. so I can be as much of a censor um, you know, around right. these questions of genre um, right. and expectation, because right. I keep thinking a novel does these, you know, that right. arc, right. even though I don't want it, but that's my challenge, <laughs> right, 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 to right, kind right, of right. like somehow do it and not do it at the exactly. same time. Well, Douglas Kenny and Tisa Bryant, thank you for joining us on The People. Thank you guys great. so much. Thank you. thank you. This is fun. You've been listening to The People on Kechung, 1630 AM. Our theme music, as always, is Octfifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. And again, please do take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. It really helps us. You could also go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. We're going to go out with a song from Los Angeles artist and musician Geneva Skeen. You can find more of her music on SoundCloud under the moniker Geneves. That's G-E-N-E-E-E-E-V-E-S. The name of the track is Multnomah Fall. Mm -hmm.